This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Gunai Kurnai people. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hi, welcome to the Inner Gippsland Children and Youth Learning Exchange, a podcast dedicated to showcasing some of the innovative research and practice taking place across our region. I'm Dr. Chloe Benson from Federation University Australia, and over the coming months, I will be sitting down with a series of practitioners, researchers, and members of our community who are working to improve the well-being of Gippsland's children and youth. Through these conversations, we hope to shine a light on some of the challenges, but also the many innovations, opportunities, and exciting projects that are going on in our communities. By sharing these stories, we aim to spark dialogue, to foster connections and networks, and ultimately, to contribute to improved outcomes across the inner Gippsland children and youth sector. In this episode, I speak to Kay Lansfield about her research into young people's contact with the criminal justice system. Like some of our previous guests, Kay is another of the Inner Gippsland Children and Youth Area Partnership PhD candidates. As touched on in earlier episodes, this partnership fosters collaborative research that centres the needs of our region by responding to local concerns across Inner Gippsland, which encompasses the four local government areas of Borbor, Bass Coast, Latrobe City and South Gippsland. More specifically, the Inner Gippsland Children and Youth Area Partnership pursues improved outcomes in three key priority areas. Namely, the partnership seeks to improve outcomes for children and young people in care, to keep children and young people safe, secure and supported within their families, and to reduce the over-representation of Aboriginal children in care. Kay's research examines how young people's contact with the criminal justice system can be reduced by early intervention and preventative strategies. As we know, this is significant because identifying youth vulnerable to possible future offending early provides one of the most effective ways of preventing an offending trajectory and the various challenges this poses. I sat down with Kay to find out more about how her research is shaping our understanding of youth contact with the criminal justice system and helping to improve practice. Hi Kay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chloe. Uh, it's great to have you here today, and I'm very interested to hear about your your research. But before we get into that, I'm wondering whether you can give us a bit of an insight into your background and experience, and I suppose what led you to taking on this particular PhD project. Sure. It's more than 20 years that I've been in um, practice as a psychologist in Gippsland, and I've worked both with youth justice clients as well as in private practice and so I've had an experience about services and how they're delivered both to young people and to families and particularly within the forensic area and so when the research projects were announced for this PhD it was very attractive to me because of that focus on research to practice and I felt that this may lead to some improved outcomes in the service system. Yeah, so that connection between sort of bridging, I guess, gaps between research and practice is part of what appealed to you about 
these particular projects? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. The, the more traditional academic PhD was not attractive to me Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. stage of my professional life, but being able to feed into improved outcomes for the community that I'm committed to working in as well as what seemed like a um, commitment from the sector to do things differently was very attractive. Yeah, excellent. And I mean, obviously, as you say, you've also got a very extensive background and and sort of wealth of experience to draw on here. So your research uh, is examining how young people's contact with the criminal justice system can be reduced via early intervention strategies. To help give us a bit of context and to kind of think about this issue, I was wondering whether you could explain, first of all, what we mean by contact with the criminal justice system, but also, I guess, why reducing young people's contact with the criminal justice system is so important. So why is this research needed? Okay. So contact with the criminal justice system can be both someone who's been victimised or experienced harm and so you need the support of police to prosecute that offence or you might need to give evidence in court or it can be through your behaviour which may be deemed criminal and therefore you are spoken to by police, potentially charged and progress through the court system and into the youth justice system. So it's very broad, but as the project has evolved, it's really narrowed down to police contact, whether that be um, police attending at a family violence incident or through offending and then progression through that justice system. But the main focus for this particular project has been contact with the police, which can then, early contact with the police is often associated with, and even if that is as a victim, um, ongoing involvement with criminal justice system. So the earlier you can interrupt that potential trajectory, then the better outcomes for the individual community safety and in terms of resource allocation, it's much better to be preventative than it is to do tertiary work, which is dealing with people once they have offended or are in custody. Great. So that gives us a nice sense then of why early identification and preventative strategies are are particularly important that sort of addresses a range of issues. The Inner Gippsland Children and Youth Area Partnerships, which this work emerges from, are oriented around local issues and place-based frameworks, sorry. The issues that your work is looking at, do you think that they kind of require unique or different approaches in our Gippsland area or I guess regional areas more broadly? Or do you think that the issues you're addressing are likely to be fairly consistent, sort of say right across the state? I certainly think that the place-based approach has a strong relevance. I think the underlying drivers that the research points to, such as considering a a developmental context of the behaviour, so an 11-year-old engaging in certain behaviours is different from a 15-year-old engaging in, say, similar behaviours and may warrant a different response. However, we need to contextualise that within the location that these occur and also understand the specifics of locations. So my work is particularly focusing in Bass Coast as I narrowed down from Inner Gippsland how does this actually operate in Bass Coast? And so just mapping the service delivery system in Bass Coast, most 
agencies are located centrally in La Trobe Valley and may have outreach locations in Bass Coast and South Gippsland. So they're only available on certain days. The travel to see clients is extensive. So all those factors, I think, interact. And certainly in terms of understanding behaviours within the broader structure, for example, if a young person says they have access to firearms, that's very different in a rural location than it would be in a metropolitan location because most rural farms or communities, it's it's a functional tool, yeah. whereas in a metropolitan location, it, it may be there for different reasons. So you need to understand those elements in a different way specific to the location where they occur. And also young people engage in... If it is offending behaviour, it's usually within their own community. They don't travel to commit crime. So I think that there's some very important features of that place-based approach in this project. Great. So I'm interested in how this is actually manifested with your study. Are you able to tell us a bit more about your research? So how the project has developed and taken shape, what you've actually been involved in doing? Okay. Um, so a lot of the work, the broader work in the literature in, in this area about early intervention to reduce youth offending, if we just concentrate on that level of contact, has focused on what are the risk factors. And my research wanted to try and look at what potentially has interrupted young people from following a predicted trajectory of potential offending. And so to look at both the promotive factors or the strength factors that exist in their community or within themselves as an individual or in their family system, or even what protective factors. So promotive factors are like the strengths that the system brings and protective factors are those that can ameliorate potential risk factors. So I really wanted to try and identify those promotive and protective factors rather than focus on risk because I think risk can be stigmatising and can often lead to what's often quoted in the field as disengagement because it's like there's something wrong um, here and we're here to tell you the right way to do it. So I think that um, we're more likely to gain greater investment, shall I say, if we're focusing on strengthening protective factors or delivering interventions more across the social ecology rather than focusing on individuals or even individuals and their family. So looking for opportunities where we can change the service delivery system or the way in which services are delivered to improve those options for young people and therefore reduce their chances of becoming involved in the justice system later in life. I suppose that puts this project more in what I'd call secondary prevention. So we identify the vulnerabilities and strengths and direct resources to address and support those rather than find risks or target people once they've already engaged in the behaviour. Or primary prevention, which is more the, say, the thousand, first thousand days project that's involved in Inner Gippsland where you, it's universal delivery of service. So this is more looking at groups that have the potential to continue to have contact with the justice system and direct resources there. 
what would you say are, are emerging as the kind of key findings so far? So what has doing that told you? I guess in the start, it's the idea of how can we use existing data sets that are in the service system at the moment and apply them to this complex social issue. So focusing on that research to practice or even practice informed research. So one of the early findings where I have paired police data with Department of Health and Human Services data and education data is that it does appear that some early contact with police in certain circumstances does seem a protective aspect, whereas the literature often sees that early onset of criminal justice contact is a flag for future offending. And so it's being able to identify in what circumstances and for whom this contact may be protective and therefore perhaps we don't need to change current practice or maybe need to strengthen that response that police have in the early contact. And it doesn't mean that that's around offending, it may be attendance to a family violence incident or it may be the way police respond to missing person reports and contact with a young person in that context and I think it's looking at one of the key aims of the partnership and the research collaboration which is doing things differently (laughs) the previous sort of siloed approach of services not understanding who's already delivering what or um, how could we work together differently to address these these concerns. And I think that if we can shift from that siloed approach, so the the current youth at risk panels that sit across this area where my research findings sort of are, are being enacted, I suppose, right now, provides a more timely response to interrupt a potential situation where it may lead to future contact with justice systems and adverse outcomes for all. And that brings up the the actual way that data systems can talk to each other and and that's certainly been a finding that that's very difficult and naturally it's important that privacy and the use of people's information across systems needs to be carefully thought through and the understanding about whether people know that people are sharing their data is, is an issue that needs to be given considerable attention. And then the other area that I've noted and it becomes of interest to me because of my professional practice background is the issue of sexual harm when the individual was say under five years of age. Um, There seems to be a link to adverse outcomes and perhaps the system's response to those cases could be different and I would see that providing greater support to the family rather than providing a clinical service to the young child which often clinically you don't work with under fives in the sexual assault services so there may be some different ways of responding to those situations that can reduce the impact in later life for those children and those families. So you sort of mentioned some of your work already being enacted and and providing timely responses. Mm -hmm. I wonder, are you able to talk a little bit about some of the ways that your findings perhaps are already being implemented or I guess how you would like to see them implemented moving forward? It's not directly my findings, but certainly the understanding that this point of intervention of sort of less formal contact with police and young people in the community can lead to 
different outcomes. And the current um, program that operates in Latrobe Valley called Reboot, run by Anglicare and involving a number of the service agencies, is able to use these data sets in a timely way to offer services to families. So it, it's mirroring what my findings are showing, yep. but one of those factors of research to practice, it takes a long time to complete research that you would say is evidence-based and practice often moves very quickly. <laughs> so um, it, it is consistent, but I guess sometimes, and in the field it's often referred to as net widening, if you see a new shiny program or an issue that needs a response, sometimes services are delivered to perhaps some people that if you just left them alone, it would be all right. And so that's the other finding. In certain circumstances, people just desist is the word or stop their engagement in potential offending behaviour or contact with the justice system without an intervention. So certainly, I guess, there's that tempering input to say sometimes just what we've been doing is okay. Um, we don't need to include everybody in services. So I, I sit on both of those youth at risk panels, so I, I can sort of say, well, this is what the data, and all my data is from Inner Gippsland Youth, and then, as I said, for a smaller cohort, matching them with Bass Coast. So it, it, it is responsive to, to what actually exists. But because service system moves so quickly, sometimes the advances that you're thinking might be useful have already been made by the time you've demonstrated that they have some validity. Yep, so I guess timing and pace is one of those challenges of bridging research and practice. Yeah, I'm interested in um, your experience of going on the, the PhD journey and, and of undertaking this research. So in particular, I wonder whether there's been any you know particular highlights for you. I know I've, I've sort of made this joke in all of the episodes of PhD candidates, but we do often dwell on the stresses and challenges of this kind of research. But any particular highlights or opportunities, I guess, that you've encountered on your journey? Well, I suppose my reference to sitting on the youth at risk panels, um, engaging with frontline workers and, and the service system and seeing the innovative work and their commitment to supporting young people and families has been really encouraging. Um, And it's also an area where I felt that some of my findings or my readings or even my practice experience has been able to support that work. So that's encouraging. And I think, once again, with research to practice, practice practice-informed research, we often don't privilege the practice wisdom of frontline workers. And when policies and then practice manuals are rolled out, they often don't, when we're talking about local context, understand that a client actually can't reach an office without either doing something illegal (laughs) or just it's not possible because of the distance and the public transport system and and the policies often, um, I'm thinking here maybe more in adult corrections, but they sometimes punish the individual from not engaging in programs where it's just practically not possible for them to actually keep those appointments. So um, the, the joy of this work is seeing when people are able to respond at a local level and share their information in a timely way and that's what I've 
really enjoyed about the process. I've also presented my research and my findings at a couple of conferences, both nationally and internationally, and to the leadership group and the interest and the stimulation of sharing those with other academics and researchers has been a joy. One of the goals of engaging in this was to have some academic stimulation. Sometimes in practice you can become a bit stale other than keeping up your professional development, but you know, to, to hear new ideas and different perspectives is always, I think, very motivating. So that's been a, a positive aspect of, of the work. You mentioned that you presented at an international conference. Where did mm-hmm. you go? Um, the Stockholm Criminology Symposium, which is a very uh, well-regarded criminological conference and a very diverse range of sessions and issues that were being addressed. And I found particularly the keynote speakers were just so convincing and cogent and well-researched in, in their addresses. And it was a very collegiate conference in that everybody that was there seemed very interested in, in the research that was going on and very supportive of practice. The Stockholm Criminology Conference is an annual event that attracts over 500 attendees from around the globe each year bringing together international criminologists, policymakers, practitioners, and others engaged in criminal policy. The symposium provides a space for experts to gather, share their knowledge, and to discuss strategies of crime prevention. It can be wonderful when you're at an event like that, and there is that buzz in the room of just everybody who's sort of interested in the same things and working on similar projects, but also often, you know, diverse projects. Yeah, and you can see the theoretical basis and the conceptual basis being applied across a range of areas, which gives you hope that actually research does have a role in practice, because sometimes it feels so divorced that it, it... It was a very stimulating conference. And the other one was the Crime Prevention Conference, which this year was in Melbourne, so it made it much easier to attend. (laughs) Um, And that, once again, I presented, co-presented with the Reboot program that I mentioned before, and and that was a really interesting experience to be presenting with workers and how the research was mirroring the practice. Run by Anglicare, Reboot is a youth crime prevention program that provides support to young people between the ages of 10 and 14 who are at risk of contact with the criminal justice system or who are engaged in low-level offending. As Minister for Crime Prevention Ben Carroll has observed, programs like Reboot play a vital role in intervening early so young people stay in school and get the skills they need to move into further education or into work. I think in talking about the the dynamic between practice and research, you've probably already touched on my next question a little bit, but one of the things I'm interested in is, is whether there are any key takeaways from your experience with this project that you think are relevant to other researchers and practitioners working across the children and youth sector more broadly. So not just the sort of specific findings, but I guess those bigger lessons, that wisdom that comes from undertaking work like this. Can you think of any sort of key lessons or takeaways that you would share? Um, And I'm being careful not to focus on the frustrations. (laughs) But that's sometimes where we learn the biggest lessons sometimes. Mm. And it's, I suppose, tolerating that there are 
a number of drivers at policy and practice level that aren't related to evidence-based practice, even though departments like to quote that. They have other imperatives, such as the election cycle, and they have a range of funding demands and a limited budget. And so you may be able to see something that you think the research findings would support that would be absolutely wonderful, but whether it can be implemented and whether the government agenda is focused on that at this point in time is is going to be either an opportunity or an obstacle. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's being able to tolerate that. I think it's being able to understand that by the time you write something up that meets the academic requirements of a PhD or a higher degree by research, it may not have that much meaning by the time you put in all the qualifiers and understand that some people may not see these findings as valid as you feel like they are when you're really invested in them. Yeah. Um, So it's such a context in which you deliver your tiny piece of research that I guess it can have an impact but you just need to be aware of how it needs to be pitched to have that impact and and what the possible obstacles are so while I was in the sort of more formulation stages so in my first year prior to confirmation youth justice was located in department of health and human services and you had that sort of more welfare paradigm sitting over youth justice and because of a number of incidences in the youth justice system it was then decided that it was more appropriately placed in the Department of Justice and now Department of Justice and Community Safety. Um, And even young people were actually incarcerated for a period in adult prisons and they're now building a new facility that's more focused on the more punitive element of the justice paradigm rather than the welfare. So these things move very quickly and research for it to be valid and provide real out you know findings (laughs) moves slowly so it's that tension between the two I think that's a really important point and it comes back to what we touched on earlier about timeliness and timing and Mm. things moving at different paces and um Yes, as you sort of flagged, that is a frustration, but I guess at least being aware of it, perhaps, you know, moving forward, it's something that we need to get better at as researchers, perhaps, or as, you know, an academy mm-hmm. of being able to, to better um, match up with or, or get into sync with other things going on. So you're getting towards the end of this project um, and, and starting to wrap up your work. I, I wondered whether you've thought a little bit about what's next, what your plans are post-PhD. I guess that assumes that it's actually completed (laughs) in any time soon (laughs) or ever. Um, Going back to probably the key reason that I became involved, that actually outcomes for youth and the community will be improved. That's still a hope and I do see that it's possible. And in fact, on occasion, I think, you know, it probably already has and that's more just through the collaboration of services than my research. But this research came out of a collaboration of of services and that's really my second point that there is greater collaboration and responsive practice and that they can say oh it has an evidence base um, because that seems to be the buzz at the moment even though there's starting in the literature to be some criticisms of what that actually means and that maybe the practice wisdom of, of frontline workers is more privileged in 
and incorporated into service delivery models and that those workers are actually recognised for the hard work that they do and usually it's the relationship between the worker and the client that leads to positive outcomes. So I think that we shouldn't lose that in the whole of that the evidence says. It's often about relationships. So even the relationships that have been built through this collaborative process um, and the synergy between the four research projects, I think, will generate some, some changes and positive outcomes. Excellent. Um, I wish you luck with the rest of the project. I have confidence you. that you will finish. I know I, I can feel a bit like it's impossible as you get towards the end of, of such a long journey, but um, I wish you luck with the rest of your research and writing up and mm -hmm. I look forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks, Kay. Thank you.